0: Wow, whoa, whoa, people, whoa, almost in the making today, almost did not get live, Allahu Akbar, un momento, un momento, Mm -hmm. let me see, donde estamos, all right, well, there we are. All right. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, أراة، peoples، mi gente، أراة، إن الحمد لله وفاة والصلاة والسلام على رسوله المصطفى وعلى عباده الذين ارتضى ومن بهداهم اهتدى وبآثار أهل المدينة اقتفى وبعد، فسلام الله على القوم. Ahlam wa sahlam bikum wa marhaban. Pakhir raghile people. Huanying, light Bienvenidos a todos. Khushamadid and swagatam, swagatam. People, what is going on? What is going on? See, I was almost held back today by the demons. <laughs> Those of you that do not know, today I will be sharing a secret, un secreto. (laughs) And that is that it appears people that I have been dabbling in the dark arts. Ooh. So right, wait there. Wait there, wait there, wait (laughs) there. So today's Mufti Masala segment will be me explaining why I'm in the dark arts, why I dabble in these dark arts, and what that's all about. All right, and apparently my demons and my jinns who are like like that with me, you see, we're like we're we're homies. <laughs> So we're going to talk all about that since people are actually, people are victimized. They, yeah, I'm undermining the, (laughs) undermining the term. They are traumatized. (laughs) They are tragedized. (laughs) I need need more grandiose terms here. It's not quite befitting. (laughs) People are suffering. Because, apparently, I've been sending a bunch of jinns to attack people. Oof, oof, Yes, zulm. But it is what it is, people. Asias, yes, <laughs> So I'm going to speak all about that uh, a little later on, about the people that I've been sending jinns to attack. Because, apparently, they've ha- got the truth out of the jinns, you see, and the jinns have confessed. Those people, these jinns ain't loyal. <laughs> these jinns ain't loyal, people. <laughs> no matter how many, how many sacrifices I did for these jinns. <laughs> so they've, the jinns have gone and infarmed them. Imphama, in Imphama in Jin, inform on me, you're <laughs> right, so they've told, they've confessed that it's Abu Laith who has sent us, <laughs> this I'm not making up, this is actually a real uh, event, but I'm gonna get to that at the end of this, uh, uh, today's episode in the Mufti Masala segment, we'll look at the jinns that I've been sending, and these disloyal disloyal, heartbreaking, ruthless, inform jinns that have kind of dubbed me in. <laughs> we'll be speaking about that a little later on. That's it, man. Snitches get stitches. These these gin. I'm going to have to put a hit on their head now. <laughs> I'm going to have to call my other gin to put a hit on these jinns' head. <laughs> All right. So, but we've got a lot to uh of other things to talk about as well today so people people let me just bring this up uh keep the questions at hand ah so the comments are disabled in the youtube all right (laughs) you know i'll tell you how this works i will check i will you know you know this is almost like the copenhagen uh interpretation in quantum physics that I'm serious, whenever I observe the YouTube comments, they're always disabled. So it will work that I will, you know, before going live on YouTube, the times that I will go into YouTube to check, it will say, chat disabled. So I'll say, well, okay. And I'll do that, let's say so many times in a row. And then one time I'll be like, okay, let it just go. Uh, because let's say I'm running late. And that day, the chat will be enabled. And I'll think, oh, that's odd. Next week, I'll remember. Like, today, I checked and it's disabled. (laughs) Yeah, who's playing these games? You know, the... The gin. (laughs) YouTube, it's a conspiracy, people. It's a conspiracy. But other than that, other than that, people, what we'll be taking a look at today... uh, Um... Right, so uh, what we'll be taking a look at with a few things, I've listed a few topics. I do also what I haven't listed, and I'll be going through as well. So you can click like, click share. I've come across another video by that. Um, his name is I think his name is Ismail, but he has a channel Don't Convert to Islam. So, in this, um uh, in this video robin says last week's class was really good Mufti, shukran robin shukran and bienvenidos it's always a pleasure to see you online here ralia shukran shukran uh right people tuning in click like click share so i will be taking a look at there's a video a new video by um abu adam ismail uh, The Who was a convert, a white convert He then left Islam I think he's a Christian now So he's got a video on the plagiarism I've forgotten what it's called now I think, but it's along the lines of Is the Qur'an plagiarized Or the Qur'an is plagiarized Something like that Now, but today he's released a part two Saying that the Qur'an was plagiarized From the ancient poets of Arabia Namely Imra al-Qais the malik al the Libertine King people, Allah, <laughs> right, so uh, a favorite of many, <laughs> uh, one that appeals to that human rascality, <laughs> right, so Imra al-Qais is a, is a legend in his own right, and we'll speak about him, but he feels that Ismail Abu Adam feels that the Quran was plagiarized from Amr al-Qais who is really just a generation you know more or less a generation or two depending how you're measuring generations before the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam but but these are the, the the celebrities in the time of the prophet so the when the prophet was growing up the celebrities that all the arabs spoke about were the poets People like Nabigha al-Zubyani, people like al Asha, people like uh, Labid, like uh, Imra' al-Qais, Tarfa, uh, all these kind of people. So did the Prophet plagiarize the Qur'an from him? This is the claim that uh, Ismail Abu Adam has made. So I want to, although I hadn't scheduled that, but I want to respond to that. (laughs) (laughs) Akhir, you know, this... This Islam knocking over this Islam is not that easy, you know. <laughs> they have to first of all go through me, you know. This one, so this. Uh, so I would like to respond to his uh, his claim on poetry and things like this in today's session. In addition to that. Uh, All right, okay, no idea. I'm just trying to read a question, a comment, but it's not making any sense to me, so (laughs) no idea. I think somebody's just. I also wanted to speak about uh, some random topics like, uh, I mean, not random, relevant, but uh, one is on the Barbary Masjid in India, the case from the Supreme Court and also so the decision has come through and so what are our thoughts about that um right so the other thing is uh the the pakistani famous actor hamza ali abbasi has made a statement recently about wishing to devote more time to religious dialogical discourses and moving away from the showbiz industry now although i don't watch Many Pakistani films don't think I've hardly watched any, right? But obviously, Hamza al-Abbas is a huge name, and he's somebody I'm definitely very impressed by intellectually, and I'd like to maybe, what are my thoughts on that? So these are some, and people, lest I forget, the problem with the far left, we need to address this. Tough talk, people, needs to be done. (laughs) Chalo ho <laughs> you know when you're doing so many pange. <laughs> pange is like <laughs> the panga hashtag panga. Punga <laughs> we call in our language. This is uh in they say say in Punjabi as well and Mirpuri and all the Patwari languages <laughs> that uh it's when, you, you, <laughs> when you're when you looking for trouble, you know, the panga, the you cause the panga. So, but what the hell, I think this, no, this is a serious issue. I would like to address this, uh, the far left. I, I think it is a huge problem and it needs to be addressed. But cool. So, uh, any questions, let's take a look at that. Um, do remember to click like, click share people, right? spread the love people spread the fit and <laughs> you never know you know you never know people awaaz deke dekh lo shayid wo mil Allah awaaz deke dekh lo shayid wo mil ye umar safar Allah <laughs> Allah Allah. He says that at the very least you might as well just cry out and yell. Perhaps you might find the person or the thing that you're looking for by yelling out. You never know, the poet says. That varna ye umar safar Otherwise this journey of life is just going to waste anyway. <laughs> <laughs> These people are some of the wise words, huh? Hi, hi, hi. So what is going on? Let's take some of your question. Not seeing you in the gym, yeah. I've been um I've been on a break for I think it's so far it's been four weeks. I've not been to the gym and probably another two weeks so i had been told you've got to stay off for about four to six weeks in between so one to recover so yeah, I had a little fracture and two I thought you know what I thought it's a good time what I'll do is I'll use the time to cut down instead so I've been actually I mean you can't really see today because I've been wearing a chuba, but I've been cutting down quite a quite substantially and I thought what I'll do is I'll cut down um in fact I've just had uh, bought a uh, spin bike <laughs> just had it assembled today so i thought what i'm going to do is these remaining one two weeks and a further cut down i'm taking some of those supplements it seems to be working wonders honestly i noticed the other day that my <laughs> my jeans had gone loose for and i don't i swear a size 32 and that had gone loose for me i was like whoa so people it seems to be working and carnitine Oof. Carnitine, people. L-Carnitine. Works wonders, honestly. Obviously, m- many other things as well. So, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I'm going to be cu- I'm cutting down. And then I'm hoping to, in about two weeks' time, to start one, two weeks, and then hit it hard and heavy. And then just proper, once again, lean muscle, build it up, stack it up again. So that's my personal... <laughs> my personal little mini project going on but um yeah right so let's take a look at some of your questions first of all people what's bothering th- the awesome minds what's preoccupying the awesome minds of me F- my um, amazing facebook gente mi gente <laughs> i can't obviously see the questions today on youtube thank god <laughs> No, I'll open this as well soon. Soon come, soon come. They do mention each other. I can't see. Abu was Rayhana forced to marry Muhammad? We should look into lean gains. Yep, I am. I'm, I'm looking into a uh, lot. I've got my own little thing going on. Is there a secret to muqata'a in the Qur'an? Are there any village wars going on? How did angels fight against the hostile polytheists at Badr? Ah, interesting. Es muy interesante. You see, let's take this question first, people. You see, it's interesting that the Battle of Badr, okay, first of all, depicting the Battle of Badr, the companions. Uh, And the Prophet, the Prophet's side, the believers, as they were then known, al Mu'minun, they were one, not in huge quantities. People, there's a famous number 313, 313, but it's not necessary that they were 313. They may have just been 300, uh, 300 and whatever, an odd number. But the point is, they weren't, they were outnumbered. That part seems to be, you know, what the evidence clearly suggests that the army of Quraysh, were probably at least a thousand strong and the believers did not want to engage in any kind of warfare um but they were prepared for it like they weren't prepared but they were you know hoping for the best but expecting the worst it was that mentality um but they were hoping that they were just able to reach the place and ha- because the whole thing was to do with the caravan arriving and they didn't want it. They didn't want it to be intercepted by the uh, Quraysh before they could get to the caravan. And so this is what the race was to. It was to the caravan. Now the dangers were if they, if Quraysh got there in time before them, there was going to be a showdown, face off, and they weren't in a good position to take on. Because they were heavily outnumbered, they weren't militarily equipped very well. I mean, they had swords, but th- that's it, really. You know, they had a few spears, a few horses. They weren't really. They were just, apart from. I mean, they did have swords and things like that, but they weren't compared to the other people who came camelback and horseback, and you know, with all these kind of drums beating and all these people making a big hoo ha. Really prepared a whole parade for war. So. Now, as it happened, the Qur'an cites the believers saying um, that they were hoping that it was not going to be a war outcome. But yet Allah says in the Qur'an, but yet Allah, what Allah had destined was to be. And the point is that they, they there is a clash, there is a face-off, they turn up, the, the Quraysh are there. Now, the believers do stand their ground and they fight passionately battle of badr is overwhelmingly a clear success for the believers and it obviously reinforces the entire faith structure and it was a very moving emotional kind of battle because one they didn't want to uh you know sometimes when you're pushed against a corner you come out of it fighting really hard so Um, So they were kind of just fed up. And it's a very, and even some of the ahadith that transmit the final du'as, I mean, not the final, but the du'as, the final du'as before warfare of the Prophet, where he says to, um, where he makes a du'a that, Ya Allah, in tuhlak hadi al-isaba, lan tu'abad fil ard. That this is all there is of the believers. If they today perish, you will not be worshipped on this earth. It's as simple as that. And it is an amazing, very emotional kind of um, um, event that takes place. Now, later on, you see Allah describes in the Quran that they were reinforced and assisted with angelic help. Now, is this literary usage or is this actual physical descriptions? Many Muslims will believe that this is just literary, kind of symbolic usage of language. Like when Allah says in in the Quran, for example, about the Bay'atul Radwan, that when they made a pledge to avenge uh, Uthman, because they thought Uthman, this is later on in Medina, had been killed, but he hadn't. And the Prophet took a Bay'atul Radwan, he took a pledge till the end with some believers around him. And Allah says, you know, they put their hands on top of you and Allah placed his hand above their hand. Now, this no nobody believes that to be literal. They all take that to be kind of symbolic usage to mean that God is with you. So this thing when Allah says there were you know five thousand angels or you know thousands of angels we sent reinforcing you was this about reinforcing your determination your your ability your steadfastness in the face of adversity is that what it was or were these literal kind of anthropomorphic like men like people that were there fighting so many people would feel that this was this was simply Symbolic usage of language It was literary usage It was not real The thing is that some Sahaba Do describe later on Like we have descriptions Of some companions saying Oh we saw these angels Come forward and fight They were you know cutting off The, mm, the limbs of the people In front of us They were slicing Slicing through the enemy ranks uh, Ahead of us Now <coughs> They say, and some of them describe them in colour, that they were kind of uh, um, armour clad, this green clad armour that they were wearing. And their horses were clad, cladded in certain kind of armour and a green colour and their faces were masked. And some of the companions, the Prophet doesn't describe this, but some people have made these descriptions. Now it's interesting that, you see, On one hand, were these simply simply kind of narratological stories that these companions were telling other generations after them, as one would um, maybe at times anthropomorphize forces or determination? Was it just a literary thing like storytelling? Was that what it was? Many people may feel that. Other people have felt that this may have been in the midst of the battle that's what it felt like to them that they felt that oh my god were people did i see something did i and they felt they saw these things so you know whether those things were actually happening but they felt it and that's fine um so that's another inter that's another interpretation now i did come across recently <laughs> a rare uh, interpretation now I'm not saying this interpretation carries any, has to be, has to carry any truth. But it was an interesting one. And uh, it was just intriguing. I mean, most likely it isn't true. Uh, I don't believe it's true, but I I just found it interesting. Uh, And I haven't looked into it so deeply. But uh, from what I came across, you see, some people have proposed... That and they and and these are some kind of historians and uh non Muslims, uh, you know, the uh and people who specialize in in kind of Persian history and things like this. They have proposed and hypothesized that Salman al Farisi, an, who was uh, a Persian and he'd come from a He had a very illustrious kind of history like somebody who initially was from the family of uh, of a Zoroastrian background and that too from a kind of priestly um, lineage and then he converts to Christianity and then he and then he becomes a very like a successful trader and then he moves to Mecca Uh, now The the interesting thing is that, sorry, to to Medina and embraces Islam. Now, the interesting thing is that these people feel that Salman al-Farsi was originally sent um, with a kind of military intelligence perspective from the Persian uh, Empire. And he, because the Persian Empire had fallen into a bit of disarray as well, and it was quite insecure. And because he was from a family that were of highly priests, they were close to this, you know, the the Kisras and the rulers and things like this. So they feel that as a very intelligent person, they nominated him and sent him to kind of gather intelligence and Hopefully, this is what the, this some of these historians have alleged that Salman al-Farsi was to mobilize these southern forces, who were these Bedouin on, and non-Bedouin, but these Arabs who were a neglected people because you had the, you know, you had the Byzantine and you had the Persian Sassanid uh, dynasties, and at the south you just had these Arabs who were a neglected, negligible force. So he was to mobilize them. And use them to attack the Byzantines. Eventually, in time to come, um, this allegedly is was some kind of um, conspiracy that some people are have argued that Salman al-Farsi uh, was originally sent with, and then he may have truly embraced Islam. Whether so, they've not. I mean, from what I've heard, they've not argued that whether his embracing of Islam was fake. So they feel that maybe he truly embraced this message, but he always kept a and he was close to the house of Karin. Now, sometimes just written in English as Karen, like the the English name Karen, like of a woman. But here, Karin was a I mean, it was a it was a man, not a woman, in Farsi, who were a particular that like a fiefdom. They had like a like a miniature kingdom, if you like, within the Persian empire and they were rivals with the current Sassanids but they were still Persian at the end of the day part of that kind of heritage and now this historian argues that there was an incident when Anu Sharwan the famous leader of the Persians is is facing a Turkish kind of onslaught that from you know the Turk the original from up north central Asia And he's going to fight them and he stands there and they stand off and he's losing. He's losing, you know, he doesn't seem to be able to hold his ground. And then this army turns up that are not a part of his army, but they come, you know, with this kind of green armoured clad, uh, cladded armour, sorry. And the horses have this green uh, cladded kind of armour and they have their faces covered and they fight off the Turk and save... um, Anusharwan. Anusharwan is before Islam. He's uh, probably about two generations before Islam. Now, you see, he's famous Persian, uh, one of the the epic kind of uh, leaders. So he then, at the end of the battle, once they've won, allegedly gets these people and manages to kind of encircle them and he forces them to own up to who they are. And they are from the household they, they then reveal that we are from the household. We are knights from the household of Karen of Karin. Now, these historians like Georgiani, um Jason Jorjani and others have then argued that they feel Salman al-Farsi had sent message to the household of Karen of Karin, who then sent those same knights. Because this description is what he feels and some other people like him feel the description of the household of the knights of the household of Karin. So they came and helped the Muslims beat the battle of Badr and then they just disappeared. So to Muslims it felt that maybe they were the angels because they didn't expect anybody to be there. So when they saw these things, you know, horses, horses, uh, in uh, cladded armor and the, and the knights in green cladded armor and masks and they associated this with maybe an angelic help or because they were told there is angelic help as well they assumed that this was the angels. Uh, that's an an interesting kind of. Um, Interpretation obviously it requires a lot of exploration into the history, into looking into these uh, these armors, sorry, these armored knights of the House of Caron and what role they really did play in history and how powerful they were. I mean, even if it is true, it in no way is it's not worrying or anything like this. It just even if it be true, it simply just goes to show that okay, that there was help, but. And some people, because they were told there was angelic help as a literary device, they assumed this help to have been the angelic one as an assumption, because otherwise it didn't make any sense. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's true. I, I don't most likely it wasn't true, but I feel even if it was true, it's not in any way problematic. But I found it an interesting theory. Nonetheless, I did find it interesting. Um cool so i hope that's broadened some uh, research horizons for some of you out there so what else is going on mi gente right so what else is going on peoples 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 share the questions, you know. share the fit and share the love you know ek lafz e ka ye adna that a word of love this is its its miniature kind of story reduced story ek lafz e mohabbat ka ye adna fasana hai simte to dile aashiq pehle to zaman <laughs> right that's um he says if you if you completely wrap up this word it embodies the heart of a of a lover and if you allow it to unfold it in it, in and of itself is time Allah 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 right so can everyone be their own mufti You see, that's an interesting question. What does that mean? I would say to some extent, if you mean by, to some extent, yes, there are certain things that will just disturb you as an individual and you have the right to be disturbed and you have the right to question and you have the right to kind of not blindly follow. These things are all right and right. I don't just mean they're all right, they are all correct. (laughs) But you see, with that comes a responsibility of owning up to your limitations. You can't be a, a mufti in the true sense of the word, what an actual mufti is. A mufti is somebody who is trained and has a skill to um, not only understand islamic law but to legislate he can himself or she can themselves legislate islamic law so just because you can in some ways if i use that term like if i agree to that sentence can we all be our own mufti to some extent but not in the technical sense not in the sense that you know a person should say well look you know what I'm just going to pick this book up and or I don't accept this. And then if they say, well, why? Fine. You could say it disturbs me and I'm going to look into it. And I'll ask people or try to learn. But not to assume that all of a sudden you're an expert on Hadith or you're an expert on Islamic law or you're an expert on... You're not. I mean, it's not. <laughs> these things, you know, they don't just... They're not, you know, just because... People, just because I make this look easy... <laughs> That's the difference. I just make it look easy. This, this, this stuff is a uh, a science, an absolute science. As they say, the man on the top of the hill didn't just land there; <laughs> he had to climb his way up there. So people, it is it is hard work. It's fun, but it is hard work. Um, it's not something so not too. So although I do support people being critical and being very, and I encourage that, but I do at the same time um, kind of press on the issue that they must acknowledge their limitations. Like a person must acknowledge, Look, I don't actually understand the Quran. You know, I must, like just because you're following your critical doesn't mean that now you've become a master. I understand the Quran just as well, even though I don't understand. <laughs> That's not true. So... Um, Yeah, so in that sense. um, Would you add more qualification on in this day and age? Would you add more qualifications on being a Muki? I'm not sure what that question means. Um, Can you clarify the hadith about long nails? I'm not sure which hadith that is about long nails. But generally, I know that, look, Muslims the Muslim culture generally does not like long nails and the the general description is one of hygiene it's because um, you see obviously you have to understand that having longer nails exposes an individual to greater unhygienic circumstances that's just a given you know that's As they say in Arabic, tahsil al-hasil, you know, it's just a a given, people, you know, you can't argue with it. Um, The question is, if you can maintain your hygiene, I don't think it's an issue. I think this issue was simply a hygienic ruling that the Prophet gave, um, where he generally spoke about hygiene. Because you have to remember as well, hot environments. Where people are sweaty where there's a scarcity of water where things like this and there isn't remember nails weren't i mean i don't they definitely weren't in the arab culture a a, a symbol of fashion so although today they are i mean they're a huge industry <laughs> but and i think you know people with fake i don't know acrylic nails or different kind of fake nails that they wear I don't think it's haram or anything like this to wear that. Um, and the, the rulings of Islam are still relevant from a hygiene perspective. And that's what they always were. Uh, like, is religious studies sufficient enough on being a mufti? Um, yeah, if you specialize, I mean, if you do the the stuff, if you study it, you are, are it. You know, it's like if you study engineering you're an engineer it's not like um, if you study the alim course the mufti course if you do these things you will be a mufti i mean hopefully if you as long as you don't entirely sleep <laughs> during the lessons um, but it's a mufti is somebody who really specializes within islamic fiqh and law and things like that and it's an amazing i mean to be honest with you i think i love the fact of being a Mufti. It's one of my, it is my life's perhaps greatest achievement. I I love it to bits. It's, it's, this is why I proudly own it. (laughs) You know, it's like I've said, and it's a title, it's a rank. It is a rank, you know, when you have to pull rank. (laughs) It's like I've often said, people, I don't have a hierarchy. I am the hierarchy. Because it's, you know, a mufti is up there when it comes to Islamic knowledge and Islamic science. It doesn't mean they know, you know, everything, but it, usually you're more better trained than most most kind of regular scholars and imams and shiukh. And it's a, a rank above. <laughs> oh, oh, the hierarchy. <laughs> right. So what are the rules regarding Sajd ah, See? it's people like this that that my heart bleeds for <laughs> see in the midst of everything what bothers what bothers brother imran is how are the rules for the sajda tilawa like when i'm reciting the quran and i have to go into prostration off off <laughs> you know pakistanis have this uh, where they kind of go overdo it with the actions and they go you <laughs> used to see a lot of it years ago in pakistan you see it here as well amongst like some <laughs> uh Yodi people but you'll they'll be like you know if they're going oh oof, they'll go like <laughs> right so uh Sajdat al-Tilawa, well basically there are certain um, prostrations in the Quran that are deemed kind of necessary, as in one should do them unless there's some preventative factor. Otherwise, if you read those verses of the Quran, you ought to do a prostration. And it's just a single, you know, you just go down into prostration, that's all, right? So it's not, uh, you know, so you'll just be standing and you'll just go into prostration. And these... Uh, obviously, you will, to do this, you ought to be upon wudu and you ought to be facing the qibla. Uh, that's the general rules that most people agree upon. And how many, um, you know, sajdat or how many of these sajdas uh, are there in the Quran? People will generally disagree. Um, it's usually to do with certain verses that instruct in the imperative tone. So it says, First, you Lillah, you know, and and prostrate to Allah. So, according to the the Maliki method, there's eleven, and the the general popular version, the Hanafi school and others is there's fourteen in the Quran, and some have argued fifteen, even. Uh, but that's the whichever. Usually, when you're reading along the standard editions of the Quran, I think they will generally go with fourteen. You will see it there. It will just say next to it Sajda. And you could just do, and they'll usually underline it. And you could just do a prostration. I mean, don't, um, it's not, you know, it's nothing to kind of really get lost in the in the technicalities of saying, well, is this a sajda? Isn't it a sajda? Who cares? I mean, just do it, you know, if, if you can. That's. All. But I don't believe it's a sin if you didn't. And there are many narrations to support that when people didn't. Like, so when, for example, uh, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an during a khutbah, a speech, uh, read one of the, the verses, and on one occasion he did get off and do sajda, but on other occasions he didn't, he just carried on. Uh, but yeah, and sajda to shukar is a different form. Sajda to shukar is a sajda, a prostration of gratitude. It can be done involuntarily, like as in, it's just a spontaneous action, like, thank you God for doing this, and you just go into sajda. A bit like maybe when some, uh, you know, Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali or some of the, you know, those boxers, they won a particular match and they just fell into sujood, prostrating. Or you see sometimes some people who do sports do that. That would be described as a sajdat al It's not really described in the sunnah. Uh, So the Prophet, it isn't really described that the Prophet actually did that ever. But I don't think it's problematic to do it. Okay, it's transmitted that some people say Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu did it, some people say it's a weak narration. Either ways. And I know the Malikiya sometimes say, Oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't do such that the shuk- sh- suj- do the shukar because the Prophet never taught it. But I would say if a person did it, it's not a big deal, it, you know, fine, it's just an it's an it's just an expressive act. That's all. Cool. Wi Fi here keeps going on and off. Okay. All right. So, right, what's going People, let's go to this question on Hamza Ali Abbasi leaving the showbiz industry. What are our thoughts on that? Now. <sighs> All right, what's life without a drink, <laughs> huh? a drink, I, I just said drink, I left it mutlak. <laughs> See, that's in the usuli term, the word mutlak, when something is just left. I, what's life without a drink, it, I didn't say what kind of drink, aha, Aha! <laughs> and then you have the terminology Al-Muta'araf which is that sometimes something إِذَا أُطْلِقَ al If you let it go, it's understood as it is in custom and convention. So you might say, well, we understand it like that. But then you could argue, but oh, conventions are conventions all universal. <laughs> you thought I was sleeping through my usul classes. <laughs> <laughs> uh all right so nevertheless people <laughs> so as you know the great we're going to come to the poet later on today the great poet uh imra al-qais he said in his famous statement he said al-yom khamar wa amr he said today it's alcohol tomorrow it'll be business <laughs> So, let me. Sobriety is overrated, you see. Right, so coming to this, uh, Hamza Ali Abbasi. I'm actually very impressed with Hamza Ali Abbasi after I watched his dialogue, uh, dialogical debate stroke discussion with uh, Haris Sultan. To be honest, I had no expectation that he was that intelligent and i don't mean that in a disrespectful way um i and i expected him to be intelligent like like general actors you know like the way shahrukh khan is i expect him to be kind of like shahrukh khan intelligent you know like a bit witty um got a few dialogues you know read a few philosophies here and there and just you know a bit of wisdoms on life and that kind of intelligent this guy is mind blowing. This intelligent. I mean, he is genius level intelligent. I was wowed. I mean, he was talking about quantum physics, quantum mechanics, Einstein's relativity. He was speaking about uh, genetics, DNA. He was speaking about cos- you know the the kind of theodicies, the cosmological arguments, the th- you know teleological arguments, the pros, the cons, the multiverse theory. This guy, I was wowed. Like is that an actor <laughs> i mean I, you know i i just did not anticipate that level of academic profundity from an actor i just did not anticipate that and i was kind of wowed like whoa this guy is next level genius and um and i think he kind of came out you know on if I can say, you know, on top in that discussion, really, uh, with Haris Sultan, uh, who's an ex Muslim. So he's now, uh, Hamza Ali Abbasi has now announced that, look, I'm going to give up showbiz. I've, I'm divorcing the showbiz industry, not on any with any bad blood, but I want to devote more time to religion and religious discourse. Um, so what are my thoughts on this? I think, first of all, I think that's awesome because I think we need, in that part of the world, especially in Urdu, we need people with more courage to be able to voice things because the divergence, the gap is getting, you know, it's just growing day by day between the middle classes and religion. And just pe- people are becoming so disaffected by religion and because it's only represented by the mullahs you know the, the the mad mullahs so so people are starting to have a disdain and a hatred for it so I'm really welcome this thought and these discussions I, I hope you know they're gonna be awesome eye-opening. I would love inshallah I, I, I don't know if you'd ever accept <laughs> I'm not a big fish on that, on his kind of level but I would love to have him on one of my podcasts as they you know as they start running. Inshallah, I think it would be epic but nevertheless I think uh, even if that doesn't happen I, I really do think it's an amazing thing that he'll be doing the only concern I have and I'm I, I'm pretty hopeful he won't go down that road is I hope he doesn't become like a full-on Mullah <laughs> because I think the problem with that is you, you, you're no longer the bridge you've just become one of the sides So it's a bit like, uh, um, a bit like uh, Junaid Jemshid, who was an icon. And, and, you know, like, I mean, people loved him. He was obviously a musician. He was a singer. He was very famous. You know, women idolized him. Men kind of deeply admired him. I mean, he was, I think, slightly, I mean, he was, in my time but as in him being an icon i was probably a kid or <laughs> just just kind of growing up but so i didn't i heard of him much later on but the point was that he when he became religious there was a great sense of hope that he could have bridged a gap but really what happened is he just ended up becoming too if i can use that word too religious as in nutcase religious and he just became a weird kind of like, I mean, he wasn't an extremist, but he became kind of uh, like a mad mullah himself in a way, you know, like this is haram, that's haram, women can't do this, women can't drive, women can't do this, they can't. And you think, well, you know, you could have done so much more for people if you just kept it kind of cool. Obviously, his choice is life. I mean, he has passed away and died in, in a tragic accident. May Allah, you know, and grant him a blissful afterlife, I mean. Uh, but the point is that I, I'm hopeful and I hope that Hamza Ali Abasi doesn't go down that route because that would just be a waste. But that was my thoughts on that. Somebody had asked about, um, oh, we've got Molana Sheikh Anis Bayat in the house. Ahlul Sahlan <laughs> Sheikh. Tasharrafna Sheikh, people from the Midlands from Leicester, I believe, if he's still there. Always feel free to reach out to Sheikh Bayat. very clued up in his field. Right, so th- somebody asked, what do I think about the Rabi Pirzata case? I've already answered about this, that I found it utterly kind of uh, disturbing, disgusting that people would leak her kind of nude videos. Um, and really, you know, people blamed, I said this, that look, people blamed her, but I feel look like, why was she? So she made these videos. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she made them for herself. Maybe she made them to share with her partner. I don't know. But the point is she made these videos where she's kind of this. I mean, it's they're, they're all the descriptions are all, you know, in the newspapers and things where she's kind of masturbating or doing things like this. Um and just, and naked, and, but the point is that instead of criticizing her, as some people have chosen to do, I've said that, look, what she was doing was in her own private space, like, who are you to judge somebody in their private space, like, at the end of the day, she wasn't doing that in public, she wasn't doing it outside on the road, she wasn't doing, she was in her own kind of privacy, Now, we may argue, one may argue, well, it was foolish to record yourself because these things can be leaked and they clearly have in this incident. And I could agree with that argument. I would agree with that argument that, look, these things are incredibly foolish and dangerous to do because they can become life wrecking for for many people. But that said, I would argue against the condemnation factor Because I still feel that although you could argue that's foolish but I don't feel you have a right to condemn her for what she did in her private space. Because at the end of the day she's on her own in a private room even if she is recording herself. You know it may be foolish but why you know it's still her privacy to what right do you have to control another person's private life. So I've you know and I don't feel Islam does not give you the right to control someone's private life. So, yeah, so that's been my thing. And I've said that I feel that things like um, um, the Internet are another attribute of kind of divinity. (laughs) This sounds all shirky when I say that. Um, And it's, you see, what I mean by that is that it's like how Yuval Harari is arguing in Homo Deus. You see, I do feel that humans, I, I kind of agree with him that we are, transitioning from homo sapiens the wise humans to homo deus the divine humans the god humans godly humans and and i think when we say this that becoming god or becoming gods people you see if you're picturing god as in islamic islam or abrahamic faith gods uh, god then obviously that's not what is meant in this in this thing because that's not Human beings are not becoming that kind of god. But they're becoming the kind of gods like the the, the mythological gods of, of the Greek tragedies, so of Hindu mythology, of the ancient Roman kind of mythologies. If you picture those gods like Zeus and Apollo and having immense strength and being able to fly and being able to, uh, if you picture, you know, like, Being able to send messages across and being able to harness uh, certain like wind power, or being able to, you will see that those kind of gods we are becoming. I mean, we have already um, in many ways become like that. Uh, We have, you know, we have immense powers now. And this for a civilization before us would just be magical divinity like they could never understand these things that how could you how can i send how can i sit here now and have this omnipresence throughout the globe potentially how could i i do that how could in real time you hear my voices and my voice my voices (laughs) those are the other voices in my head and and see me is that not a sense like you know the gods of old like indra and these gods of? So I I feel in some ways, and the internet is one of those attributes, the ability for an infinite source of information, the ability to never forget, which is not human, you know. So we now, you put something like one of these videos on the internet uh, to shame someone, and the internet never forgets. And do we really deserve having the power to destroy somebody's life like that? Um, I don't feel we do. I would argue that we do not have... um, the right to destroy anybody's life like that. So yeah, so these are my thoughts on that. I have said that before. Right, let's take a few live questions and then we'll get back to some of these criminals of Islam. I haven't watched or read that, if that's a book. I haven't read that. Uh, I'll try and look into the summary. Um, Let me see. Let me just go to... Right, people's, people's... What is going on? I'm just trying to go to the questions. Right. <clears throat> what are your thoughts on DMT? <laughs> Sajid Khan, a man who has his priorities in place. I think DMT is not haram and I think it's awesome. Uh, I would personally think it is awesome. I do agree that I think it's a kind of... Um, it's maybe a, a gateway to, I don't, you see, because I use the word spiritual in a different sense to what people use it like. So to me, spiritual is more about consciousness, because I see the ruh as consciousness. So to me, things like DMT may be the hidden cheats in this world, a gateway into the realm of consciousness. I'm very intrigued by these things. I don't think they're haram and I find it utterly, utterly disappointing that certain countries, um, that many countries, they deem, them, deem it to be illegal. I find that ridiculous. Uh, you know, I've been to s- certain lectures by professors and experts in DMT who've shown the statistics there's never been a single death uh, by things like DMT. And the body has natural receptors for DMT, so it, you know, it must. That isn't that doesn't isn't that intriguing? That why have we got so many natural receptors for DMT? Where are we getting our DMT from? So that's so intriguing. I find that, um, yeah. So I, I, I think that the British government needs to review its drug policy. You know, how can things like alcohol, which cause deaths, ridiculous amount of deaths on an annual basis. You've got reports like that deemed so toxic, the toxic, you know, toxicology reports and things like this. And then you've got something like DMT, which really is a entheogen. It's not a recreational drug. It's an entheogen. It's something that is to connect people with God. But once again, I don't feel it's for everybody. <laughs> so don't, I don't advocate that everybody should take it, but I feel that, you know, I don't definitely don't feel it's haram, but I do understand that it could be overwhelming for people to make that connection with the realm of consciousness like that. Mushrooms, exactly the same thing. I don't feel psilocybin is the psychoactive ingredient in mushrooms. Sosibin is not haram. None of these these drugs, you see, psychoactive drugs like that are not a matter of haram. They may be a matter of legality and they may be a a matter of, um, you know, sensibility, health sensibilities and how people take them, but I don't believe them to be haram. Um, Somebody's posted a question. Uh... Somebody said, Mufti wearing a thobe uh, is a sign of the Day of Judgment. No, this is for my Mufti Masala at the end when I'm going (laughs) to... This is when I'm going to express why I dabble in the dark arts. But that's going to come later on. Mm, What about Kava? 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 What is Kava? We use kava to mean uh, (laughs) just it's it's like basically just tea without milk really and it's it's seen sometimes with a few other little herbs in there just to usually used as medicine that's what we call kava. Right who were the Ikhwanus Safa? Uh, Ikhwanus Safa you know someday I've I've got a a bunch of articles one someday I'll go over that some of their things, and they were an intriguing anonymous group that did, uh, on many levels, try to echo the voice of reason. Um, but I, I'm not. They may have come up with other weird things as well. But I'll 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 bring out their books and I'll go over some of their things as well, and then maybe try and summarize it. You look like the Grim Reaper. Hell yeah, that's the that's the point, because <laughs> we're gonna. Speak about that a little later on. Uh, you don't think psychedelics are uh, intoxicants? Psychedelics are not intoxicants. Psychoactive drugs are not uh, intoxicating. They are. They may be hallucinogenic. Uh, some of them. And you see, this is another thing. People don't really study psychology. <laughs> they don't really study the brain. They don't understand how drugs are organized and categorized and things like this but it's not a, an intoxicant, right? But it is, and intoxicants are usually depressants. Um, it's not, it's, it is psychoactive. It's a psychoactive drug. That means it may have hallucinogenic properties and most likely does. That's the nature of psychoactive drugs. But the, the question of, you see, hallucinogenic properties, is that a hallucina, hallucination or is it? A peep into the realm of consciousness. You see, what what's to say that it's not a realm that we have access to? See, many people like um, Huxley and other people had argued that the the neo frontal cortex, you know, the brain, the prefrontal cortex, is actually a which is the CEO of the brain is actually a consciousness reductionist valve. So it cuts off, narrows the amount of consciousness that can get into the brain. And the brain is actually like a uh, receiving device of consciousness. And see, because studies have shown when people are on DMT and when they're on psilocybin, mushrooms, and even to some extent LSD, that they've shown that what happens is contrary to what neuroscientists anticipated, activity seems to shut off and be, incredibly reduced in the neofrontal cortex which is really fascinating so what is going on then why why is uh, why is this person getting all this experience by the neofrontal cortex reducing activity so i am inclined to that view that consciousness is non-local and we are kind of like receiving devices so i do feel that and i feel that that is the concept of the ruha. Right, so, yeah, that's my... Uh, and and hence, with this, there's a kind of like a social network of consciousness and the hadith that that the arwah are, in essence, like banded, grouped together kind of formations. فَمَا And that which kind of gels well, the people gel well, And that which doesn't, they repel one another. I just find it very fascinating, that's all. Right, Mufti, is it wrong to use the term Wahhabi? Wahhabi happens to be one of the names of uh, uh, Allah. (laughs) Wahhabis are not Allah. (laughs) (laughs) Right, heavy ma'am lahogia, that hadith came to mind and so it does, right? So, um, Wahhabi, is it derogatory to use the term Wahhabi? I mean, it might be derogatory to the people that you call Wahhabis, but it's not um, wrong in Islam to say the word Wahhabi because Wahhab is also a name of Allah, but that's not what's meant here by any sense, and people understand that. See, Wahhabi is in reference to uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, and the sorry thing is that you see, he's the one who did all the... You know, you know we have this word, put. <laughs> it's in uh, our lingo. You know, when somebody does some garbar, <laughs> they, when they kind of uh, do a bit of fitna facade, they kind of mess things up. <laughs> you know? So we call that put. <laughs> so this guy, he does all this put, so to speak. and And people don't kind of give ragu him they don't kind of have a go at him i mean they do but (laughs) the name that embodies that disaster of what he did is his dad his dad gets it for free (laughs) because his name was muhammad ibn abdul wahab that's his dad's name so (laughs) so people going wahhabis wahhabis Uh, i mean don't get me wrong i will say it as well at times but the in essence, that's his dad <laughs> he was getting it for free, I guess. But but people mean by him. So they mean the movement, the Wahhabi movement and things like this. It's not wrong Islamically, but obviously it can be provocative. And I mean, people use it. I get it. I, I use it at times. So it's not a... Uh, if you can see this, you like this Facebook playing up. I've got no idea what i are saying. Right, so... What is going on? Mitente. Right, shall we take a all oh, right? Salam, bro. Mufti Abu Layth. <laughs> Nazia Shah Go, <goes> salam, bro. <laughs> What's up, bro? <laughs> do you do live talks? Uh yeah, this is a live talk right now. I'm doing it right now. So right. Muhammad Mahdi says Salam Mufti just to say the stuff you mention in your Monday nights has had many re-evaluating their faith I listened to you talk about the return of Jesus and listening to your opinion has made me question my whole understanding of the topic including the fact about you saying that the Prophet's hadith about the 10 major signs were never mentioned it's not And, and really in all honesty you know this all the Ashrat al Sa'a and everything, most of these hadith are kind of made up. Um, they may have been made up with good intentions, but, and this is why, you know, one of the famous statements of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal that he said, like, three things, tafsir, Maghazi and Ashrat, these things have no basis to them. That much of the tafsir you receive from, like, let's say if they're saying the Prophet gave tafsir of this or the companions, most of it is made up. As are most of the battle's descriptions. Most of them. I mean, maybe the underlying theme, but there's so much detail in some of the books. It's usually just made up. and Or it's kind of just just because... It's a, a story that somebody's kind of spun and then somebody else has added to it and somebody else has added to it and they've tried to dramatize it. And uh, and the same thing about Asharat, you know, the, the end of time. So all these kind of... Um, apocalyptic, fear-mongering kind of um, predictions and prophecies are usually made up. That's the nature of religion with capital R. It does a lot of that. Um, somebody said, you need to read the book Apocalypse in Islam by Jean-Pierre Fouy. Okay, I've not read that, but I will look into it. Is the Friday prayer in the mosque also an obligation in a country that's not Islamic? Um, I believe that the Friday prayer is good. It's good to go to if you can. I don't believe it's an absolute obligation to attend to, in, especially in this day and age, in this part of the world. I believe it's a good thing that, you know, it's good that some people are going and that it's one of those things that a portion of the community ought to do um that's my belief I don't believe it's an absolute obligation and and hence many people sometimes did boycott or, or they just didn't go to juma like imam Malik he uh abandoned going to the mosque for the last 25 years of his life he didn't used to pray in the mosque and obviously he never used to pray Juma either <laughs> it'd be rather silly if he just turned up for juma and, <laughs> and didn't turn up for the other prayers so he wasn't um like, so I don't believe that he was sinful or anything like this, and I don't believe it's an obligation, but I believe it's strongly encouraged. I do accept that. Um, but I do feel that Juma did have to it and still does, in some ways, an underlying political uh, theme and motive, motif that is, um, that is inseparable from Juma. <laughs> People, somehow the words come to me, even astonish me. <laughs> uh, why didn't the Prophet compile the Qur'an in its current form prior to his death Because that was his life's purpose Maj Salim asks <laughs> Well, I wasn't there <laughs> Why didn't the Prophet compile the Qur'an in as a book, you mean? Hmm, good question the prophet compile it as a book now why didn't he compile it as a book? you see in one way one could argue like i'm sure some people here may be arguing or in other places that that's a shortcoming some people may try to say oh that's a shortcoming of the prophet or the shortcoming of the message of islam okay The other way to look at it is, you see, in a world where nature dictates that survival is only by the fittest, in a world like that, a message that comes to you so powerfully driven will bring with it some challenges that unless you rise to those challenges, then you are not worthy to transmit that message the companions of the prophet were left with that challenge some have uh, have have said the quran implicitly directed them to that trajectory by saying al-kitab, that book you know la that there is no doubt in it it is a guidance that this In the time of Abu Bakr, as the challenge manifested itself and intensified, the companions were met with some confusion about what to do. But they rose to the challenge. And had of they not, the message may have dissipated. It may have withered away. And in some ways, had of they not rose to it, one may argue, are, are such people who didn't meet the challenges worthy to transmit such a powerful message? But they obviously proved they were. So in many ways, I can understand the question as, as a critique. I, can, I get that. That look, the Prophet did not compile a book. But he left it in the hands of people in whom he saw competence and potential and and it was then up to them you see because this message was not for the prophet to do everything with it because it was not a message just for him it was a message for mankind if mankind were to fail it then they were to fail it anyway so in some ways i i do see this you know, I see this criticism, I get it. But I also can see the strength in the history that we have. It's an undeniable history that the companions did document it. And the Qur'an was transmitted. You know, they may argue whether, well, you know, there was this, there was this variation, there was this, that, true. But it was successfully, overall, transmitted. So, yeah, if that's of any help, Allahu Akbar. Farhan Zubairi, all right, Mufti Farhan Zubairi. Ahla wa sahlan, ahla wa from the U.S. people. You're doing it. You're doing it. Prophet wrote Quran. Shia believed the Prophet wrote Quran ali. Quran, ali. Quran, Quran written by Ali. Oh right, okay, yeah. I mean, the Shia. Do disagree on certain things. I don't, I don't think by and large they disagree on the Quran today. And the Shia amongst themselves are very divided as well. They're not a monolith body. You know, so it's not you know, so some of them may have said things that, you know, there were other portions of the Qur'an. But to be honest with you, some Sunnis have said stuff like that as well. You know, if you read the Sunnis, I've always argued against that, you know, what's in those hadith in Sahih Bukhari and that the Qur'an used to have more parts that disappeared. And, you know, like the hadith which is a Sunni hadith that Aisha saying, oh, that an animal ate a portion of the Qur'an and things like this. And I I feel these things were always nonsense. And, you know, I felt that they're always blasphemous to the Prophet transmitting these things. And there's a hadith that the Prophet saying, oh, he forgot portions of the Qur'an, but thank God so-and-so reminded him. Astaghfirullah. That is the epitome of blasphemy. <laughs> and other Sunni scholars, you know, they, they they said this is as stupid and dumb as it gets to say things. You know, uh, reading what Maturidi had to say in his tafsir about this stuff. You know, uh, Abu Mansur al Maturidi, he says that this is ridiculous to believe stuff like this. He says because if you're saying that the Prophet forgot portions of the Quran there and then, if somebody was to, if somebody had asked him about that verse, he wouldn't have known about it which would show a failure and a failing in prophethood. So I find these things ridiculous. But, you know, this ties into a more interesting question. And that is that we lack a critical review and a critical evaluation of our own tradition. This is the problem, people. Honestly, if we as Muslims had just got on with it and reviewed our own tradition. But we haven't. And then we only review it once it's given to us by it's it's handed to us. (laughs) You know, uh, we're kind of smacked in the face with it by Orientalists or Islam revisionists or ex-Muslims or atheists. And then we're like, oh, oh, what do we do? What do we do? Well, that's what you get for not reviewing your own tradition and being critical. You need to review it yourself. As, I mean, I'm not saying you guys individually, but we as a Muslim collective, as Muslim scholarship, that we have a burden of responsibility to review and evaluate our own tradition. And yes, there have been some scholars throughout history that have been inclined that way. They have reviewed things. You know, people like Ibn Hazm, other people who had a very critical voice, Shokani and Samani, and people like this. But by and large, this tradition has been of kind of confessionalism. You know, it's just kind of just taken it and just pass it along and pass it along. And then you get smacked in the face with it. And you're like, (gasps) Yeah, so, yeah. You know, that's the thing. So then we're just awaiting another tragedy to befall us really you know mesazishum ekira ek yateem shehzada koi chupa hua khanjer meri talash mein allah 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 he says that i'm uh, he says a an orphan prince who has become engulfed by conspiracies against him that a hidden dagger somewhere is silently seeking him out Allah! Allah! That Very powerful, very powerful people So, right, so um what's your view on boxing i've answered this before boxing is permissible there's nothing um obviously these any of these sports are sports they have dangers and i'm not saying i advocate that but i i do advocate people learning boxing um but i i don't advocate necessarily taking it up as a sport as a kind of profession but people want to people who are cut out for it why not i mean if that's their thing they know the risks And they do it, yeah. Um, Wendy Khan, last and final messenger, you are right. I'm not sure. Early post-prophetic history and the early Muslim community political issues. Yeah. Isn't it true that some Jew started the Shia sect? Jack Bauer saying. um, If I found the five, how to perform ones that need could be performed like Hajj, Salah and so on. Would you agree with my analysis and study of the Quran if I found the five pillars and how to perform? I'm not sure what Jawad is trying to ask me here. Uh Right, so the right, now the, this thing about um I'm not sure what the question is, uh, there's a few questions going on but people are talking about them they're not i don't know what the actual question right so this thing about did a jewish person abdullah ibn sabah or these kind of people or, or, or did they invent shia uh <laughs> the shia sect uh, i don't In all honesty, i don't th- i think that's just a, a sunni hype that like a jewish person invented <laughs> That's just like a typical uh, Muslim kind of response, isn't it? (laughs) Blame it on the Jews. (laughs) I I do feel that um, the early people in the early generations um, teach us a spell to control. (laughs) I do believe that the early when the Shia thing kind of was created it originally just began as kind of a taking side. It wasn't a theological thing. It was just a taking sides. So the Shia to Ali were the people who took sides with Ali, and the other people who took sides, let's say, with uh, the other people. And it wasn't just Muawiyah. And I think this is sometimes what what I strongly disagree with on the Shia, that they only present it as an Ali versus Muawiyah, when really... There were many companions that Ali was against, you know, all you know, and this this whole including Zubayr and Talha and Aisha and all these other great companions who were on that side. Um so yeah, so th- this thing of so people who took sides, so those who parted with Ali became known as Shi'atu Ali. It's only later on that this became a theological kind of uh belief structure. And yes, I do believe that many people who joined the Shia to Ali exploited the vulnerability of the situation so they may not have been sincere about Ali but they just realized this is a great opportunity to you know to get what we need and to join this rift and this faction and um, I do believe that I, I, that's you know that there were many people that did exploit that as as many humans would you know if you saw an opening you'd go for it simple as that, uh, but I'm not, I'm not kind of saying that the whole Shia thing was a conspiracy. I think it was in all honesty it was a a human problem, you know it's, it's like with anything isn't it that after the leader passes, it falls into disarray, and and. Islam in some ways was no different I guess that the huge mess that was created after the passing of the prophet and I'm not saying created intentionally but that manifested and it was just because people were humans and just that's the issue human all too human and they just you know, the fighting, the wars. And and it's interesting that certain scholars have argued that, you know, we have in Islam, we have this history of ancient Arabia, al-Jahiliyyah, ayyam al-Jahiliyyah, what they call ayyam al-Arab, the days of the Arab. And the days of the Arabs were simply wars, like the, you know, Harb al-Basus and Harb al-Bu'ath and Harb al-Fujar and all these kind of things. Now, these things, were really just like these long, like let's say the forty-year war and this war and that war. Now, although many wars did happen, but some scholars have argued, like Baha' Hussein, that the, that this was really a back projection of Muslims that they manufactured or exaggerated many of those stories just to kind of be able to outshine them with Islam. So they kind of exaggerated, like what they tried to do was exaggerate the darkness to amplify the light. You understand? So some scholars have argued, and to some extent, I think Baha Hussein may have a point that historians may have done that. This isn't Islam doing this. This is, remember, 200 years after the Prophet, that people may have done things like that, that amplified, they, they may have kind of exaggerated in in how the, the, the horrific fighting of the Arabs and so on. Just to kind of demonstrate that, oh, when Islam, and also to kind of acquiesce the infighting of the Muslims that happened after the Prophet, to kind of take away from that, detract it, or to kind of eclipse it, because if we say, well, look, all this fighting happened and thousands and thousands of people died, and then you say, well, you know, pre-Islam, so many 40 years they fought. In you know, and, and you're thinking, whoa, that's crazy, and, and so all of a sudden, this looks very small. So, I think that there's some truth, some bitter truth to, to maybe what Sheikh Taha Hussain was saying, right? So, uh, somebody asked why was Imam Ahmad's method not accepted by Imam Tabarani it's not Imam Tabarani it's Imam Tabari. Tabarani is another scholar Abdul Qasim al-Tabarani is a famous muhadith who has his ma'ajim his books on hadith he has the ma'ajim al saghir wal awsat wal kabir and many other books as well on um, the the practices of a day and night the ruat whose name is Atta and several other kind of books he has that are in print now but the uh Abu Ja'far al-Tabari, who passes away in 311 Hijri. <laughs> Puttar, you think I don't I don't still got it? <laughs> Even when I'm on a mini break from the gym, <laughs> chilling at home, I still got it. <laughs> so Abu Ja'far al-Tabari, who passes away in 311 Hijri, he uh, was very opposed to the kind of... Um, the Madhab of Imam Ahmad I don't think uh, he was I don't think he was opposed to Imam Ahmad as much as much as his followers because he doesn't really meet Imam Ahmad at all. he's after Imam Ahmad. Um, whether he met him briefly, I don't think so. But even if he did, but he, it's mainly his clashes with the followers of Imam Ahmad. And he kind of says to them, I don't think Imam Ahmad really had a madhhab. He was just a scholar of hadith that had some opinions. You guys are bigging him up too much. <laughs> In some ways, I kind of feel some truth to that, Steve. <laughs> I think the Hanbalis were just, they were just except, you know, the Hanbali madhhab is just a kind of pity madhhab. That the other methods never even for several hundred of years never even acknowledged them. And then they're just like, yeah, they're like the token guy, you know. <laughs> You're like they're like, yeah, you know, equal opportunities, equal ops. <laughs> they're like, I know, you know the special needs group, let them in as well. <laughs> And then the Hanbalis are like, hmm, we're in this group, we're in this group. <laughs> uh, there have been one, two kind of Don Hanbalis I've been impressed with over the time, like Ibn Aqil and a few others, Ibn Al-Jawzi and Ibn Khudam has had a lot of talent as well. But really, by and large, most of them have just been really weird. Weird doesn't even cut it. <laughs> They've been like the token convert, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like is alright. You know, we look, we we do have great sympathy. Look, we've got the Hanbalis with us. <laughs> We're not bad people. We let the Hanbalis be part of Ahl Sunnah as well. Aye, <laughs> ah, Mazari's in the house. Ah, your Mazari <laughs> doing it, doing People, let's take a look at this um uh, this this Qur'an uh, discussion, was the Qur'an plagiarized? So this is the discussion, yeah. Now, the, what the argument is, let me bring you up to speed with the argument. It is that people are claiming, uh, or this is especially from the video of Ismail Abu Adam, his channel, Don't Convert to Islam. Um, where he highlights that the Quran was plagiarized by the the poet, as in the prophets sneakingly stole poetry from some lines from Imra' al Qais, the, the epic poet pre Islam. And he, the prophet, then posed these off as the Quran, some verses. And this is how the Prophet, you know, oh, so the Qur'an is plagiarized. Now, why has he made this claim? So f- why has he made this claim? Because he feels that there's, there were some uh, claims to, um, it's not a, a, I mean, it is a manuscript, but it's not a um, manuscript of Imra' al-Qais, but it's a manuscript of a poem that is attributed much later, as in, centuries later after Imra al-Qais that's attributed to him that has some lines in there like uh some of the That like there's a verse of the Quran iqtarabat al that the the hour has been brought near and the moon has been cleft asunder now this iqtarabat al um is is claimed to have been in one of the poems of Imra al-Qais in the more popular version, and and these are not necessarily authentic, but I'm, I'm going to get to that. But in the more popular version, it's Danatis Sa'a. The Sa'a has drawn close. Dana is another word from where you get the word Dunya. And Sa'a. So Sa'a wa al So, right. So they're saying that, did the Prophet steal this from Imra' al-Qais? <sighs> right. Right. The answer first of all is this is totally absurd. Okay, and I'll explain why and I'll go into a bit on who Imra' al-Qais actually was. First of all this look this if the prophet had been stealing the Quran from Imra' al-Qais, let's say Imra' al-Qais, by the way, was dead way before the Prophet. But what we're trying to say is the Prophet somehow got hold of some of his poems and he tries to sell them off as uh, as verses of the Qur'an. You see, Imra' al-Qais was not an unknown person. He was a legend to the Arabs. This would never have worked so let me first of all explain who imra al qais um and who who has brought up this debate so this i know ismail is speaking about it but he's not he hasn't obviously invented this discussion this discussion was brought up during the british raj okay the british raj of india um there was um there was this uh, this there's a famous scholar of orientalist uh of the name sir charles lyell who was a civil servant in the british raj now he was an alleged expert on arabic he entertains this discussion but he's seen as the expert who actually uh, disowns this this claim it is brought to him by william tisdale now Tisdale is really this person who is meant to be very talented. He, um, he uh, knew many languages. He knew Arabic. He knew things like Persian, Hindustani, Punjabi. Uh, he actually wrote out the grammar for things like Gujarati. And he tried to codify certain languages like Punjabi, Persian. He was an expert on Persian. And he was based in Persia. He was an Orientalist right so now what happens is right so during his time he comes across a um, he comes across a manuscript that that states that oh this is an old poem of Imra al-Qais so when he um, looks into it he finds that okay Sorry, I was just seeing this, this message. Right, so when he looks into this message, he realizes that, oh, this is, wow, the, these verses look very similar to some verses of the Qur'an. He then starts saying, well, okay, this could mean that the Prophet stole this from this famous poet, Imra al-Qais. This is where the argument originates. Uh or, He presents it to this scholar, Lyle, who takes a look at it and eventually concludes that, no, uh, the style doesn't match up and this doesn't seem to be an authentic poem or a line from Imra' al-Qais. That's the kind of gist of it. This argument was presented around the early 1900s, 1910, 1920, approaching that kind of uh, time, really. So it's not something which... uh, is an a, a new argument in in that case okay so who was sorry i'm just trying to so who was imra al qais right imra al qais is um imra al qais is one of the major celebrated poets in arabia he comes from this tribe of kinder now kinder were an immigrant and this is why you're going to understand why this is so important kinder a few hundred years you've got to backtrack so first of all pre-islam we're going to go back a couple of centuries you're talking like 300 years before islam a group of migrants from southern arabia they migrate towards Central kind of Arabia, Central Arabian peninsula, peninsula, around places like Najd and these kind of places. These people go on to become known as kinder. They were a migrant kind of um, a community that set up there. They get then they establish a kingdom. They eventually become very powerful. Okay, uh, Imra Al Qais's grandfather, Al Harith. And by the way, there's many Imra. Imra Al Qais simply means. The, the servant Imra' like the man of Qais who was a god and there were many people many ancient Arabs before Imra' al-Qais with the same name who are very popular so not to be confused with with you know with those Imra' al-Qais now his grandfather the poet's grandfather was very well known because he, sta- he conquered a huge kingdom if you like he set up the Kinda kingdom and he conquered parts of. I've spoken in the past about the northern Arabs in their capital, cultural capital, Hera, and this is where the famous Lakhmid dynasties were, and they were um, under the protect. They were protectorate, a protectorate state of the Sassanid Persian Empire. Now, Harith, who is the grandfather of the poet, captures Hera for a few years, and you can imagine his whole kind of uh, influence is massive. They stabilize their central place, which is places like Najd and Yamama and these places. And, and what they do is they make this a safe passage. So because a lot of tribes would fight and things like this, so they make a safe par- passage for caravans and things like this. So they are very well known, the tribe of Kinda. They're not like unknown by in any chance, you know, in any kind of circumstance. Now, after Harith passes away, he has like five sons and he sets them about on different kingdoms. So one of these guys, his name is Hujar. He's the father of the poet who they're saying that the prophet plagiarized. This guy, Hujar, once again, has an established kingdom close to Hijaz. Parallel, you've got Najd and Yamama and these major Arab tribes like Khatfan and Bani Asad. And these kind of people who uh, he is in charge of. He's not a just a nobody. And they were at one point started to conquer many other territories. And they were seen as like a, a brutal force to the extent that the prophet has said, allegedly, allegedly that the prophet said it's it's attributed to the prophet that he said, you know, when Islam came, things changed. Otherwise, kinder would have swallowed up the entire Arabs like that's how because they started to expand they were also at one point one of the few tribes that attended to intended to unite all of the arab factions so have a confederate kind of state so the grandfather of imra al-qais attempted that with some success and imra al-qais arguably attempted to unify all the a lot of the different arab factions in his time he was one of the few sons and he was a useless kind of like a vagabond. He was somebody that was a bit like he was just a wanderer. He was drunk often, loved drinking, uh, loved women. <laughs> Much of the world hasn't changed there, as you can see. <laughs> so he his poetry is full of that. And he didn't have this kind of he he was like a wandering person. He wasn't a mystic, but he was like he was like a lost cause. A rebel without a cause. He would he had this group which were known as the Su'luk. They were they became like almost like tribe-like. They were a community of people from lost causes from different tribes that came together and they were like his gang. So they would often just travel about. Obviously, they got into fights, they got into things, they would just drink. Uh he he would just always, you know, he was into women and and he was really known for this his father at one point hujar who was like a like an established mighty king he he gets into some battle takes over some people and then you know he is trying to punish them or something and then he decides to forgive them they seizing the opportunity kill him and it's interesting actually because they do they decide to kill him as an act of rebellion Whilst incited by a kahin, somebody you know can speak tongues and do this kind of, he's he feels he's kind of dabbles in the dark arts, and so they get inspired, and then they kill his father. As he's dying, he argued, This is what it's claimed. He set. He kind of sends a message to Imra qais his son, that you must avenge my death. And he's like the the useless son. <laughs> it's a proper Bollywood movie. So. The person, the messenger, comes to him, and he is drinking alcohol, and the person, and he's playing a game of uh, they say Nerd, which is backgammon or something like this, or so it may have been similar. He's playing this game with of with of, of dice, and he's drinking alcohol, and somebody comes and tells him your your father has been killed, and before he died, he 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 put it on you to avenge his death. So he says his famous statement. Imra' al he says ضَيَّعَنِي أَبِي صَغِيرًا وَحَمَّلَنِي دَمَهُ كَبِيرًا He says that my father wasted me as a child. Like he ignored me, neglected me. I was never of importance to him. And when he died, he ruined me further by kind of burdening me with, with vengeance for his blood. So then he says that, you know, he's, he says that today is not a day for sobriety. <laughs> where he says اليوم خمر that today is a day for alcohol أمر and tomorrow we will see to this affair Allah! Legends are in their own kind Now, Imra Al Qais gathers his vagabond kind of gang his Su'luq who are like disaffected tribal members and he tries to and he, to kind of raise an army of a Confederate army from different tribes to avenge, um, you know, his father's death against this tribe who then have protection from like the Sassanids and so on. And, and there's this whole thing. And he does actually rise to a scale where he is, uh, it's claimed he's invited by Justinian, the, the emperor. But although he doesn't actually get to meet him, he dies en route. But he rises to, you know, from a complete lost cause to that status where he almost is successful in building a Confederate army of varying tribe factions to unite in a cause. It's actually a very. um, Uh, epic tale you can follow it through in much more detail in your own time but he this is celebrated as one of the most powerful attempts although it was uh, you know it wasn't fruitful it was an abortive attempt it it was unsuccessful but it was celebrated as a major attempt only then to be successfully carried out under the banner of islam that the you know varying faction tribes of uh, of arabia united so it's interesting that some people have argued that, oh, this was a you know like a mission of many, a vision of many uh, people to unite, unify the different um, tribes, varying factions. But if this person, Imra' al-Qais, who is seen as an epic, a hero, whose tribe are so powerful, who Omar praises his poetry saying that, you know, he dug into the spring of poetry and made words flow that these are the words of umar regarding Imra al-qais and they argue that the prophet said i don't don't think it's authentic but they say that the prophet said he would be carrying the flag leading all uh, poets behind him meaning that this is how he is rated as a poet if the prophet was to plagiarize his work which by the way is not in his diwan so this is the um this is the diwan of imra al-qais this is his poetry that is arguably com- compiled Th- those lines are not in this but they're saying that if it was a separate thing that the prophet got hold of and he managed to pull it off they would never have let him he would have been caught out the prophet would have been caught out like that kindah were not a, just a nobody they were a a force to be reckoned with you know they were not they were huge and they had sway and power they weren't just a like you couldn't just and then take such a celebrity and you happen to know something which other people don't and you'd compromise an entire message by trying to steal a few lines and risk being caught out. so that's absolute nonsense it makes no sense that the prophet would have been able to do something like this so surreptitiously so kind of you know um inconspicuously in a way you know it just would not have happened okay so yeah now the other thing is if these lines were true now they're not actually true because even the orientalist scholars like Lyle and these other people themselves conclude that, look, we don't, you know, upon further study of this, it's not actually, this does not look like the lines of Imra al-Qais because he was somebody who's known to be a, a worshipper. He wasn't a devout worshipper, but he worshiped idols. He was not, and this speaks of the final day and day of judgment. And he didn't believe in things like this. So these poems wouldn't even make sense. The other thing is the metric scale is problematic. And even if somebody was to argue, just by saying certain words overlap, they will always overlap in language. I'm just saying, not that this is a strong point, but you will always get certain words that overlap. Because if I speak something in English, then there's so many verses in the Quran with words. Now you're going to get a small, you know, one shak al-qamar, a small overlap, if people share a similar kind of psychosocial uh, land space. So I just wanted to uh, highlight that the other thing that I want to conclude with, and I know many people may not agree with this, but I do believe this to be true, is that you see a lot of jahili poetry, like, you know, this like, this is Imra al-Qais people. By the way, these are his kind of... He has the amazing, uh, you know, his famous poem, نبكي حَبِيبٍ وَمَنزِلِي بَيْنَ That this, you know, he's telling his two companions to stop and cry about this, this, you know, this woman he loved who's kind of left. She used to live at this place. And it's an amazing poem, but he doesn't, obviously, it's not... He is somebody that you will, you know, if you start reading him, you'll see he'll speak about so many uh, you know, different women. Look, مِنْ أُمِّ الْحُوَيْرِثِ قبلها, You know, like Umm al before her. بمأسلي, and her neighbor, the other woman, Umm <laughs> Al-Rabab. Hero. Hero. This guy, hero. <laughs> you know, he says uh, he has this poem that Ala this is part of his famous mu'allaqa. <laughs> <Allah. laughs> he says, But how many days have you had that were awesome with these different women? <laughs> He's addressing himself and he says, Especially the day at Dara to Juljuli. <laughs> Juljul, <laughs> Jul. <laughs> jul. <laughs> jul. <laughs> you know, in our language, Jul means. Vamos. <laughs> Let's go, right? But uh, but he's talking about especially at the place where he. Uh, it, it, basically, there was this place where he says uh, these women were, and he describes them as these young virgin women. <laughs> he says that they were at this place and they they're kind of bathing at some in some lake or something, and they get stranded. And so he turns up, (laughs) as you do. (laughs) He just happens to know where the place is. Uh, And he turns up and then they, because they're stranded, they need, obviously, food and they're starving. So what he does is he, look at Vala, he says, hungry, (laughs) takes out his sword, sacrifices his camel. (laughs) <laughs> a real man. <laughs> so, right, right, so he, he sacrifices camel and he feeds it to them. And he says, but what a day that was. Huh? He says, <laughs> I win over many of them. <laughs> he says, uh, <laughs> Now he's speaking about another one. Oneza. He says, but the day I entered the little, you know, like the curtained little room. Um, but this, he's speaking about on especially on top of the um, the camel, you know, what they would ride in, especially women. They'd have like a little veil kind of where they could sit in. Um and he says, <laughs> And she says that, what are you doing? You you're gonna make this camel cut, you're gonna make us fall. <laughs> <laughs> and he says "Takulu, wa mal mahal bina ma'an aqartu ba'iri yamra' al-qais fanzili and she said that what are you doing you're gonna wreck my camel you know it's like for God, for the love of god she says yamra' al-qais get off and he says fa qultu siri wa arkhis imamahu wa la min janaki al-mu'allali he said i said to her let the reins of the camel go and you come near my dear. <laughs> he said, why are you dancing me from this <laughs> from this sweetened harvest? <laughs> Check this out. And he says, myth He says, and how many pregnant women like you <laughs> and nursing like w- women who are suckling their young still, like they've got a, a baby. How many pregnant women like you and suckling women have I, he says, <laughs> have I had sex with? And to the extent that she completely forgot about her young. <laughs> this is how he would, this is why he was called Malik al the the kind of libertine, lost king. The, the one who was completely, uh, but this this is his famous poem, by the way, which people have argued was stuck on the Ka'ala. I think that's a myth, but anyway, they've argued that. Um, and he says, you know, it's it's interesting, and about a different one, Fatima. A Fatima mahlan kunti qad He says that, you know, if you've, he says, Fatima, chill. You know, says, unless you've made up your mind. In that case, leave with he goes, why are you arguing? Just leave. <laughs> and it's it's amazing, you know. His his whole and check this is a very epic line of his. That muqtali." That he says, and your eyes never like shed tears except they shoot arrows straight into this killed, torn heart of mine. <laughs> but this is, uh, people, this is Imra' al-Qais. Huh? And he has a very, like, uh, which is proverbial, a kind of line where he says, bahri الْهُمُومِ لِيَبْتَلِي He says, and, and how many nights have kind of lowered the curtain of darkness over me? Like, he says, as though it's a kind of a wave overcoming me of water, a tide. And he says, only to do so with so many different problems and calamities to try, to try me. It's amazing, you know. He um his his thing is so um i would definitely advise people to to kind of explore him but but my point was coming back to this thing that if imra al-qais if the prophet had uh, done this one it would never have kind of it would never fly people would catch it two this kind of poetry in all honesty i am convinced with Taha Hussein's argument that really it was created during or recreated during the Abbasid period. So that this poetry, maybe parts of it or the message was kind of authentic, but I don't believe the finites and the wording is authentic. Because it's just not possible that these Arabs who lived in so many different parts of Arabia, they had the same dialect that they spoke high Arabic like this it's just not possible I I don't I I struggle to believe that they did and I feel that what happened in the Abbasid period early Abbasid period there was a huge there was a kind of like a craze uh, and an archaic Arabic mining craze where people started to let's seek out oh how do you say this in in pure Arabic how do you say this in high Arabic let's find Bedouins let's do this let's do that And a lot was at that time when all is that is the time when all this poetry surfaces as written formats. And I feel that people, they may have genuinely told these poems. I'm not saying were lying on purpose, but it may have been that it was told to them. But people along the way either added to them or they definitely Arabized them into the high Arabic that we have i don't believe that this was word by word verbatim and the dialect what the ancient pre-islamic arabs would have been using i think this was later reinvented by many muslims and reinforced to solidify quranic language and teachings and things like it was like basically muslims were doing it um some were seeking it out. Others were with this, you know, demand this supply. And ultimately, it was trying to reinforce that look oh, well, the Quranic language can be measured by this. But really, it was it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I do. Um, I, I am inclined to Taha Hussein's argument cool i do feel that the 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 poetry's epic and definitely the poetry has been around at least from the early abbasid times i mean you're talking like at least 1200 years or so but do i feel that these muallaqat were exactly the muallaqat that nabihah spoke and you know a'sha spoke and labid spoke and tarafa and imra al-Qais? i don't think so i i uh, and if you want to read more on that, you can read the book, al uh, Jahili by Taha Hussein. It's a very interesting uh, book. I do, but the stories of this guy were well transmitted. Guys, poet, in Al-Qais, were well, well-transmitted. So this argument collapses really of, you know, whether it's uh, Tisdale or, uh, I mean, they themselves, the Orientalists themselves say we're not convinced, but even what Ismail in Don't Convert to Islam is saying, it doesn't really add up. Right, guys, with that, let's move on. Um, uh, Jack, Bauer, somebody. Right, guys, I want to quickly... Can we say that hadith of verbatim prophetic... I've answered this before. Most of the hadith are actually transmitted by meaning. I prefer twinkle, twinkle, little star than your complicated poetry. Well, Daniel, Steve, there must be some divine wisdom <laughs> in why God hasn't opened up your mind to this poetry, and He's and why God has left it <laughs> with the cap at "Twinkle, Twinkle, lucky, lucky Star." You know, there must be some divine wisdom in that, after all. Well, who are we to challenge God's command and God's decree? <laughs> This one, my friend, you sing "Twinkle, Twinkle, Lucky Star." Okay, so <laughs> right, so let's uh, with that. Let's take a look, people. At, um, what's this? Can we offer prayer as a janaza prayer as a form of protest? possibly possibly i i haven't I don't i'm not familiar with this incident i'll have to look into it yusuf ahmed zahabi is in the house people sheikh zahabi is in the house the golden one the real golden one <laughs> i know there's uh abu sama zahabi who uh, also goes by that name but uh look at tsvski saying muta oh, what is it with this obsession muta <laughs> I saw this clip where some guy in Hyde Park is saying, Muta, Muta, we should do, the the, the Muslims say Muta. (laughs) Right, guys, let's talk about this briefly, the the far left. Look, reason I want to talk about this is because I feel, look, from a political perspective, I, I do believe that it's wrong to impose these paradigms on Islam or religion especially islam about the left and right because i don't feel islam works in the same paradigmatic manner <laughs> rather so uh but that said i do accept in politics of course and i would myself agree that i am on the left i agree as in that is associated with more liberal values in less control, you believe that you shouldn't be controlled by other people, by other governments, by, you know, you should have more freedom as a person. I'm very much inclined that way, and I'm sure anybody who knows me knows me. The issue is, as a person who espouses such views, I see that the far left, the far left is a virus, a cancerous virus, that really people who espouse leftist views ought to condemn. Because if you don't condemn it, what happens is the far right use that to brand everybody with this kind of political understanding. Just as people on the left sometimes they, you see you've got people on the right who may be very conservative in certain things and more about governments having some control and you know in america maybe republicans or whatever here maybe conservatives and the Tories and but then you've got the far right who are usually very racist they they take these values and they're all about imposition a fascist form of them and people on the right are expecting To condemn the far right, and obviously makes perfect sense. Everybody should condemn them, but we should equally condemn the far left. It is unacceptable. Some of you know this kind of impositionism, this kind of fascist form. It is exactly the same, except the what they're saying is just different, but the attitudes are the same. And I want to highlight two key things with that message. One is on racism, and the other. On as the great scandal, obviously sex, <laughs> right? But the the first thing on racism. Oh, I read a story? You're doing black magic. Riz, ah, oh, Riz, Alan, 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 sahlan. right? So the right. there is a lot of there have been discussions in the past, and I've even commented on this, on things like white privilege. Okay. I want to make something very clear that that is not an excuse for any kind or a cloak. It should not be used as a cloak for any kind of racism towards white people. It is utterly unacceptable. Okay, it is not like I disagree wholeheartedly with that kind of stuff. And even this, you know, this when people speak massively, I know I gave examples that it is in this country as well. You do get it. There is this kind of discrimination. True. But this real kind of privilege that people are usually speaking about is really manifest in places like America. You know, when they say, oh, when a person like, so, for example, a person, uh, there was this discussion of white people who became Muslim and then they have a lot of privileges, So so there were certain questions that would we really consider certain scholars in the position they were if they weren't white. That does not apply. Honestly, it's not manifest in the UK. And it is unacceptable to kind of try to guilt trip just normal, let's say, white converts to Islam by trying to say like apparently there's been things, discussions and online where people are trying to say, oh, as if you become a Muslim as a white person, you need to disown your whiteness. What kind of BS is that? What kind of nonsense is that? You know, and I I utterly condemn that kind of wokeism, right? This kind of alt-wokeism. Like, I, I think this is cancerous. You can't, you just use, you're just, um, that's just fascism. You're just basically trying to use liberal words and words to do with human rights, and you're just, doing the same thing you're just attacking people so you know people will say things like oh when a white person uh, embraces islam so there's a person i know who actually received comments like this like oh you're a white guy you embraced islam and i married i I believe he married a, a black muslim woman oh you married a black woman just so you can subjugate a black woman just so you can have captivate an exotic body Just so you can, you know, like, oh, you did this because that further proves you're racist. Or you did it to prove, like, just so you can have it as a token trophy wife or something. You know, this kind of stuff, Wallahi, people, that is, I mean, it's so disheartening to hear this. I want to say very clearly, I have not seen in the UK, on the Islamic scene, any white privilege on the Islamic scene in the UK that's noticeable or that's actually been substantial, that comes to my mind. Generally speaking, I don't, obviously I don't, you know, monitor everybody's lives, but generally that comes to my mind for that discussion to even really hold any place in, in the places, in countries like the UK. Yes, as a broader discussion, as a broader discussion, one could say that yes, there is discrimination in the country, Yes, there is, and that needs to be tackled. There are far-right views, they need to be tackled. You know, there are these kinds of... But let's face it, people, you know, in in this country, it's true that people with a certain accent will be equally discriminated against because they will come across... I mean, people who have a strong uh, black country accent, (laughs) the (laughs) yam-yam, they'll be discriminated against white people, why do you think they all voted far right? Blame it on the immigrants, because people are just so fed up of like being, you know, living in poverty, living in, you know, that that kind of uh, state culture that these people have. So it's not that if you're white, you're living a happy life here. Not at all. And, And I have come across some of these things and it really disheartened me. So I want to set that straight. I first, you know, may Allah, any person who comes to this faith of any color, and especially in this country, people have come to this faith if they're white. You know, that is a great struggle in and of of itself for them. And may Allah bless them. May Allah bless their lives. May Allah, you know, give them more kind of happiness and, and protect them from this kind of cancerous, hateful, bitter people. Who, so I just wanted to make that. And I may, you know, some people may be upset about this. I mean, I don't think they should be. But if they are, tough luck. <laughs> I say it as it is. So that's one thing. Um, yeah, because it does. It creates, you know, Ben here is saying and, and, you know, he's witnessed this firsthand. And so the thing is that, look, it creates a vicious cycle because then they become more distant. And then they hate more on the other people. And then they hate more on the other. And it just gets, it's a horrible cycle. So I just wanted to put that out there. The other thing, people with this ultra-wokeism on sex, (laughs) let's talk about sex, (laughs) is that, look, I really can't stand this demonizing sex or, or lust. Like what? Look, these are just creature instincts. You know, people will be. You know, this this whole thing because I said what I said about uh, Ustad Osama Cannon, I never look. I want to set the record straight. I, rec- the other day, I got into this back forth Twitter clash here with some lady called Rukaya Harris. Now I don't know her, but uh, I mean now obviously I know of her. So she kind of said about my Osama Cannon tweet that it's because of people, basically it's so shocking that people like me being a Mufti will, you know, use this to justify the action of these people, blah, 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 blah. This is so, honestly, so I did respond in a crude way because, look, she said that it's not naivety because I had said that, look, what you're arguing is the classical thick position. You're trying to say that women, because in classical fic, they said women can take care of all affairs except nikah. Because apparently in nikah, men will just take advantage of them. So they always need a man to conduct their nikah, a wali. Now, I personally argued against that. I said that I was in line with those people. Women are just as capable. They know what they're doing. You know, they're not naive. But to say, well, oh, no, that, you know, what it is is women just don't know when a person is, uh, you know, like they don't expect a person to have sexual cravings. And if he has these sexual cravings, he's a sexual predator. This is wrong language. man. Right? This, this kind of stuff. Look, these things, you're talking you, to conflate between clear crimes. There are people who are sexual predators. They attack usually, not only vulnerable, but usually underage. Victims sexually abuse them, these things are crimes. There's a legal system in place to catch these people, you know. To say that, oh, a bunch of women agreed to have a private short term nikah with a guy and then it didn't end well, that's in no way, there's no sense of force there. You know, that's not a yes, it might not be a nice thing, it might be a horrible thing. Maybe the guy, you know, as they were saying, he was a jerk, maybe he was. But to say, like, just because it was a bad decision and, you know, I should have thought more wisely, oh, it must have been abuse. That's that's not true. It, there was no force. You know, you, you may have been persuaded, but it wasn't forced. You could have just said no. So, yes, I did respond by saying, look, I said, <laughs> I said, look, if you open your legs every time a man asks you to, I think that's more a muscle reflex issue. You should see a doctor. <laughs> so they got really offended <laughs> and they said well you know these men you know they just didn't you know and then obviously she <laughs> got so I, I hit her nerve honestly she goes oh this guy you know you have this and you've got a criminal record and you've got this and you've got that and i thought <laughs> okay, so I wrote, wow, that turned personal real quick, did. <laughs> Oppressed turns oppressor within one tweet. And oh, you know, there's this, oh, you lost your job because you watched porn. And I was like, well, uh, I didn't, though, but okay. Uh, I mean, I didn't lose my job. <laughs> So it's like, well, oh, okay, uh, you know, you. I don't need your uh, opinion on this, and oh, potential, uh, you know, the uh, what is it? What's the word? But anyway, these kind of like sexual predators and these kind of things, and and you think, whoa, 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 whoa! Calm down, lady. <laughs> First of all. <laughs> All I've said is it takes two people to tango. You know, like I agree, I've agreed from the very offset that these things I've never agreed with them. I've said, look, people shouldn't use the religion, like, shouldn't be an imam trying to lure in women and things like this. But if a woman goes to a man and them, don't be surprised, don't be shocked that men want to have sex with women. Don't be shocked about that. Don't act like, oh my God, well, I'm so. Oh my God, really? You think, uh, no. (laughs) How do you think your mother conceived (laughs) the immaculate conception? (laughs) You know, if your dad wasn't lustful, you you wouldn't be here today. So just to demonize lust and to say, well, if men have lust, which they do, but, you know, it may not be a nice thing. It's like saying human beings have greed it's not a nice thing, but they have it. You're telling me most people would not want your money. They would. You know, if most people could get your money from you and they could get away with it, they would. That's the nature of this world. So don't be so shocked. You know, just it's about, yeah, it's it's bad, but it's a bad decision. You know, it's like the analogy. Imagine your friend persuaded you to to pull off some robbery. And he said, oh, I've got all these things. And I've got this massive scam. And we're going to pull it off. And I've got all the tools. And you think, well, mm, I don't know. You know, mm, I don't know. And the guy said, trust me. Oh, you're going to love. Oh, you're going to love this. So you say, well, go on then. And then you go along and they pull it off. But you're the only one who gets caught. <laughs> That's got to be one crappy situation to be in. And you got to feel absolutely horrible, absolutely horrible, I, I get that. But you think if you say to the judge, oh, I was abused into that situation. Uh, I don't think so. It, was it a bad decision? Yeah. Do you feel horrible? Hell yeah. Especially since the other people got away with it. And it was, And it was initially their plan. But this is why you have the voice of reason. And, th- you know, if you feel so vulnerable then use a well go with the traditional classic fic position that, look, okay, I'm not going to conduct any car. I'm always going to have a man that will conduct it for me. Because men, obviously, suss other men out straight away. You know? Men know. <laughs> They're like, that rascality. Oh, you. Right. So I, I just feel that, look, I was in no way. I want to be clear on this, saying that it was a good thing that, that what these imams are doing. But I was just saying, let's be fair. It's not abuse. It's a hor- it's a horrible decision. It's a crappy decision that you've made, and you've got and you regret it, and you feel horrible because the person's rejected you afterwards and treated you like a moron, which he may have or may not have. But the point is, there's no force. So let's just be real. So I wanted to kind of tackle that. But yeah, so this thing of trying to force this onto people, creating this kind of like man hating. You know, men are dogs and they just, you know, I hate men. Somebody commented about me. Oh, I used to think this Mufti Abu Leith was okay, but now I just, you know, oh, I, I just can't bother with men. <laughs> well, you're going to surely live a happy life, ain't you? <laughs> Why not? Look, I mean, why why this hatred? Men don't hate women. I mean, that's the problem. Look at Imra' (laughs) al-Qais, our hero. (laughs) And don't demonize. Um, I I agree with people should try to control certain desires. I agree with that. But we shouldn't just because people have desires try to treat them like monsters. Because men, you're going to say, oh, men have sexual desires. Ah, oh, this lust, they're evil. They're all predators. You think, whoa, 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 calm down. Calm down. A bit, it's a bit, <laughs> a bit too fired up. All right, people. On that note, I want to speak about the, the, the Prince Andrew interview. People, if you have not watched this interview, <laughs> you have to watch this interview of Prince Andrew giving an interview on justifying himself with Epstein so basically they've said look you've you know you spent several days with Epstein and you've kept these so many years of contact and what's this all about so what he says is they go well here's a, a a young lady a girl a teenager at the time who who's come forward and said well she's had sex with you on many occasions and had orgies with you and things like this and you know she was just a teenager at the time and um you you know and here's a photograph of you standing with her so he's standing there with this shirt like open a bit and uh i don't know what i think it, whether it's a club or some kind of thing and this guys, it's not a club but some kind of i don't know party and he's got his guy's arm around her waist and they say, well, and here's a photo. She's produced a photograph of you two together. So he says, well, (laughs) he doesn't say the hand isn't mine. He does better than that. He goes, well, well, you see, ah, well, uh, you see, I would, uh, I want to say I have no recollection of this event, of ever meeting this lady. And I know that that. Is not true because when I travel, I always wear a tie, and I'm clearly not wearing a tie in that photograph. So it could not be me because I, when I travel, my travel clothes are always with a tie. It's just you know, I, I, no tie. It just can't be me. <laughs> I thought, what? The... And then he is asked. They asked him. Uh, are, are, are you suggesting this photograph is fake? Uh, are you suggesting this photograph is fake? Well, first of all, nobody can prove that it's that 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 actually took place. And that's a, I just want to say nobody can prove it. <laughs> and then the best <laughs> people check this out. <laughs> I don't know. how No wonder his PR guy told him, don't do the interview. The moment he did, that guy quit. They said, well, she, you know, she she has a, a vivid memory of you that look, you know, she met you at this club. And he says, well, <laughs> another reason that can clearly, clearly not be me, is because I remember on that day I went to a Pizza Express with Beatrice in Woking. I I I I remember that I went to they're like well why do you remember that so clearly what why would you remember going to pizza express uh so uh be- because i clearly i mean i'm royalty i clearly do not go to pizza express and i've only ever been i do not go to woking so i've only been there on two or three occasions so i would clearly remember i i was with beatrice i and we went to a pizza express <laughs> and then the guy says i mean sorry the lady says that, uh, right. But, and she says in her description, she was with you all night, you know, they had that later on you had sex and you did this. And and she says that she remembers about you that you would sweat profusely. That this was, uh, she mentions it in her description. What would you like to say about that? <laughs> oh, well, you see, I've actually stopped. I actually don't sweat. I, uh, you know, I went i had an injury in the falklands war i was fighting in the falklands war after the war i have just because of the shock i just do not sweat anymore uh i've given up on sweating and recently i've only uh started to sweat again so uh no that can clearly clearly not be me i i i just do not sweat <laughs> people what the hell was that what the I'm. Te- oh, sorry, i got to plug this in. Oh. Oh, is that charging? Is that... Oh, right, so this, oh my God, was so hilarious. You've got, honestly, you've got to watch it. Sweat, well, I've stopped doing that. <laughs> you couldn't make up that interview if you tried. Uh, Please watch it for the love of God. So funny. Right, guys, we're gonna have to start to wrap this up. Before we wrap this up, there's been some news that I (coughs) dabble in the dark arts, people. (laughs) So some guy, Umar Mustafa, I don't really know him, but some, I think, he studies somewhere in Saudi, I think, American, I believe. He became possessed allegedly last year by his own admission. He made some refutations against me. And after the refutations, he began to become ill and weird. And he his strange things started to happen. So he approached an exorcist, as you do. And the exorcist successfully exorcised him. <laughs> And the jinn spoke. And the jinn spoke in a thick, <laughs> no Freudian slip there, in a thick British accent. <laughs> hey, oh, rather. Oh, my, my. Abdul Rahman, what am I doing over here, good fella? <laughs> Cheerio. <laughs> so the jinn spoke in a thick British accent. This is in his words, he, he put this on Twitter. And they said they were forced and they gave me up. They said that Abu Laith has sent us to destroy your life. Oh, for doing refutations against him. <laughs> so the jinn, these jinn ain't loyal. These jinn not loyal, you know. jinn, Zalim Jinn, they Infama jinn. <laughs> These jinn have had it. I'm going to... But now I've got some solid military-grade trained jinn on the case. Omar! <laughs> so people... I, Omar, I warned you. Now, people, I've got with us today as a mini-representation of Omar Omar I want and the thobe the thobe is not doing isbal look it's above the ankle right arch, 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 arch. Memory. <laughs> and because part of his tobe is under his is doing his bal. it's below the ankle, the ankle pain. Oh, dark spirits, I summon thee, shower down on Omar with Calamity. (laughs) Ah! Omar, you better watch out now. This one's not nice, you know, my friend. (laughs) zara is going to be looking for her penguin there goes oh no there goes his hadith study i just knocked it out of his head all right so you see people look this is what happens i want to look i tell people that Jin possession doesn't happen. Oh, by the way, they said that was part of my plot. (laughs) The greatest trick the devil ever did was to convince people he didn't exist. And then like that, he was gone. (laughs) So they're saying that's part of my magnificent plot to make people believe that jinns can't possess people. And then I send the jinn to possess them. i I gotta say though one thing i gotta say seriously these people give me so much credit i I, they i they leave me in a confused position you know (laughs) because i partially want to admire them for giving me so much credit (laughs) so the so yeah so i wore this for because i'm one the halloween and two because of dabbling in the dark arts so obviously as i've got my victim here Oh, who's studying in Medina University in Saudi Arabia. And because he's been refuting Malm, nobody refutes Malm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait there. Oh, oh. no, no, no. <laughs> Oh, people, relax, relax, people. I'm going to revive him later on. I'm going to revive him. <laughs> Right, so this is the thing. Look, I want to say, seriously, this is the problem. I thought first this was a joke. Yeah, I thought that they were just joking around, trying to say, well, oh, you know, Malm has sent uh, some gins after us. But then I realized they're actually genuine. And this is why... I clearly warn against this kind of superstitious belief that just look at this. I mean, look at the kind of misery that they self-impose. And I'll tell you something. Oh, my God, people. Oh, my God. You won't believe this, but my Facebook has <laughs> the live has actually stopped. <laughs> oh, I think I know what it is. All right. So I got to. Oh, damn. I want to finish this. Let's see if I can. If I can get it back on. Uh, ah, <laughs> maybe, maybe it is the gym. So if I can just, there it is. Mm, come on, that's better. Right, that's better. There it is, almost. Just done. All right, we're there, live. There you go. So, alright, people, we're back. That was the jinn. (laughs) I take it back. I take it back. I take it back. I take it it. (laughs) back. I'll offer another sacrifice. I'll offer another sacrifice. (laughs) So, people, look, the interesting thing is that the verse, right, the verse of the Qur'an, the interesting thing is that the verse of the Qur'an actually says that there were this is the verse of the Quran there were men from humans who would seek refuge with the jinn this is what made them become more frightened you see you gave mentally more power to these imagine like this kind of imagined phenomenon and then before you know it, you know, you are no longer the master of it. It is the master of you. So people, that was clearly, yep, those of you just tuning back in, that was clearly Ginny intervention. Now, I know that the battery is low, and I think I know why that's been happening. My, <laughs> my Zozo, Zara, I think she's downloaded a lot more apps. And every time you keep, if there's a surplus amount of apps, it doesn't run live. Uh, it keeps interrupting. So I learned that. In the past, <laughs> so it's okay, but I'll still offer that sacrifice. Don't worry, don't worry, huh? Two headed goat, okay, two-headed goat. okay. <laughs> gotta find a two headed goat, people. <laughs> right, so guys, all right, so this is what it is look, this is the stupidity, the level to which people go. You know, believing in this kind of superstition, becoming prisoners. And this is antithetical, the opposite of the message of Tawheed, right? Really, if Islam came for one thing, it was to break the shackles of superstition, to kind of empower people to be able to, one, lead their lives free of superstition, and two, to be able to connect ultimately to God. So, yep, I'm back. Uh you are not alone. All right. Shukran <laughs> if You're doing it. Uh, the spell isn't gone. It isn't gone. Oh, I've got to, like I said, I've got to sacrifice the two-headed goat. I've got to look for that after I finish. <laughs> right, so people, it's it's back. Eyes back, I'm here. <coughs> Talking as well. Huh? <gasps> you know, on that note, I'll, <coughs> I'll share something <coughs> that <coughs> I was reading up. It's very interesting on <coughs> infrasound. Infrasound, <coughs> anything below 20 hertz. see now this is going to sound like the spell has all gone wrong (coughs) that's actually (coughs) because of the drink (coughs) I swear (laughs) so anything like let's say 19 hertz or around that (coughs) we can't actually pick up generally speaking audibly however the body can still sometimes detect it so it can cause vibrations, subtle vibrations, even in the eye. <clears throat> so we can think we're seeing something, but it isn't there. Similarly, the body gets a very frightened feeling because it can sense sound but not <clears throat> see anything. But because you can't hear anything, you don't know why you're getting frightened. <clears throat> and, so, and certain animals, elephants, even certain tigers will communicate in infrasound so humans may have developed this ability to be able to pick up that there's some danger even though they couldn't hear it now sometimes you may be in a building and something may be producing a (coughs) an infrasound but because you can't hear it but your body feels something and it just feels a wrong kind of feeling like Like something scary, spooky. And sometimes you start to see things. And it's an amazing phenomenon to look into. Infrasound. And that's all it is in essence. It's not actually some spooky thing. Cool people. With that I'm going to wrap it up. As always it's been awesome. We've been going on for a while. Any issues reach out to me. Much love. As always. Take very good care of yourselves people. Remember me in your kind du'as. Wassalamu alaikum. Rahmatullahi Taala, Wabarakato. All right. In the words of, uh, in the words of Soda, that Soda ke was taken Kisam Muhtasar. <laughs>